Well, hello, hello, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. You're making my day by being here with me, and we're going to be talking about a really important topic, which is the sepsis bundle. Now, before we dive into that, let's take a quick minute for the listener shout out. This one is so good. It's from Shannon, who says, I just wanted to give a quick but heartfelt thank you to Nurse Mo. I just rocked out my very first nursing medical math test, and it's all thanks to the boot camp math modules and foolproof method for dimensional analysis. When she says foolproof, she means it. Worked every single time and on every question. I've had such a lifelong fear of math, and now I know I got this. Thank you, Nurse Mo. So congratulations, Shannon, on rocking out your very first medical math exam. The confidence you feel with that is just absolutely priceless, and I'm so proud of you. If you have a fear of med math like Shannon did, then all you got to do is go to my Confident Calculations program where I teach you a step-by-step method for getting your dosage calculations questions right every single time. I'll put a link in the episode notes. The easy thing to do is just go to straightanursingstudent.com forward slash everything and then click on the link for online programs. Okay, we're going to talk about sepsis a little bit today, specifically the sepsis bundle. So sepsis is a life-threatening medical emergency that is caused by a massively overblown response to infection. It's like the body says, oh my gosh, there's an infection, and then just goes gangbusters, and there's no oversight, there's no breaks, it's just going for it. So it's just way too big of a response to infection. Sepsis is usually caused by a bacterial infection, but it can be due to viral infections too. Lots of patients in the ICU had sepsis related to COVID-19, for example. The pathogens most commonly associated with sepsis are E. coli, Staphylococcus aureus, and some strains of Streptococcus. Infections that lead to sepsis can begin anywhere in the body, but they most commonly start in the urinary tract, in the lungs, the skin, and the GI tract. Now, sepsis affects a lot of people, more than 1.7 million adults in the United States each year and is a leading cause of death in United States hospitals. In fact, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one in three patients who die in the hospital have sepsis. And that is just mind-blowing to me. So early recognition and fast treatment is absolutely vital so that we can improve patient outcomes. So early goal-directed therapy, you'll sometimes see that abbreviated as E-G-D-T, but early goal-directed therapy for sepsis was first introduced in 2001, and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign was launched in 2002. Since then, guidelines for the management of sepsis have been developed and continually improved upon. These guidelines are often referred to as the sepsis bundle. So let's talk a little bit about the stages of sepsis before we dive into the bundle. So sepsis is divided into three stages, sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. So sepsis is present when the body has an overblown response to infection. 
Severe sepsis is when the response has caused organ damage. The symptoms will depend, of course, on which organ or organs have been affected. For example, if the lungs are affected, the patient will have increased respiratory rate and require more and more oxygen to maintain an adequate oxygenation level. Septic shock is when the patient remains hypotensive even after we give them fluids. And this will all make more sense when we start talking through the bundle. So what is the sepsis bundle? So a bundle refers to any collection of interventions that, when done as a whole, greatly improve patient outcomes. The sepsis bundle is a collection of tests and treatments that help us identify and treat the infection quickly. The goal is to catch it early and initiate treatment before it causes organ damage. In this early stage, improved outcomes are noted when all of these interventions are completed within one to three hours from the time sepsis is recognized. The faster, the better. So are you ready to go through the bundle? Okay, let's do this. And don't feel like you have to take notes because I will include a link in the episode notes and I'll talk a little bit about it at the end for a way that you can get a downloadable study guide to accompany this lesson. So the very first thing, we're gonna call that step zero. This is that early recognition of sepsis and that is the key to treating it, recognizing it, early. And we do that with a sepsis screening tool that evaluates a variety of factors. It's going to look at vital signs that are abnormal, like elevated heart rate, elevated respiratory rate, etc., a temperature. It's going to look at an elevated lactate. So drawing a lactate level is an important part of this step zero. We also want to see if the patient has a confirmed or even a suspected infection. And what I mean by that is a confirmed infection would be obviously that's understandable. Suspected infection is maybe they have a chronic Foley catheter and you look at it and it just looks nasty, right? The urine coming out of there is all cloudy. Well, that's highly suspicious for a UTI, right? Or maybe they have a wound with purulent drainage. That's a suspected infection, but that's probably actually bordering on a confirmed infection. But anytime the patient has an infection or risk for it, that's going to make us think sepsis. And then organ involvement. We're going to look at things like tachypnea, tachycardia, hypotension, hypoxia, decreased level of consciousness, Things like that are going to tell us, hey, organs are starting to get involved. And as soon as sepsis is recognized, we call that time zero. We call that this is the moment when the clock starts ticking and now we have to hustle. The very first thing we're going to do for this patient, you know, I mean, there's going to be a lot going on with this patient. Obviously, we're not working with this patient alone in isolation. If the patient needs respiratory support, you're going to address that. But you're also going to be doing these things in the sepsis bundle. So hopefully you're delegating and getting your friends in there to help. And that step one thing is we got to get cultures. We have to know which antibiotics are going to best treat this individual's infection. So we do that by obtaining cultures. Now, I know antibiotics are super important in sepsis treatment, but antibiotics will skew the results of that culture. So the gold standard is to pull that culture, get those cultures, and then start our antibiotics. So in most cases, we're going to do what's called a pan culture, especially if we're not really sure where the infection is. And pan culture means we get as many cultures as we can 
blood culture, urine culture, wound culture, sputum cultures, all of those things were applicable, right? We're going to get as many as we can. And we want to do this quickly because the next step is absolutely crucial. And that step two is to start broad-spectrum antibiotics. Now, antibiotics are to be administered as soon as possible after recognizing the signs of sepsis. Now, most facilities have a goal of antibiotic administration within one hour. Note that you're not going to have culture results within one hour, so patients are started on broad-spectrum antibiotics. Once the culture result tells us the specific pathogen, then antibiotic therapy becomes obviously much more targeted to that specific pathogen. But we're going to start them on what's called, again, that broad spectrum antibiotic. And that's going to be something like Zosin, which is piperacillin tazobactam. That's a combination medication. Much easier to say Zosin. Might be ceftriaxone, could be cefepime, could be meropenem. Those are some common broad spectrum antibiotics. Now, in order to start the broad spectrum antibiotics, a lot of things have to be happening, right? You're not just going to say, oh, this patient screens positive for sepsis and then go and grab an antibiotic. You need to alert the MD, right? The MD needs to see them. If they've had a lactate drawn or not yet, that needs to be drawn and then it needs to be resulted. The MD has to order the antibiotics. The pharmacy has to look at the order, uh, approve the order, supply the antibiotic. You have to get it out of the Pyxis. You have to get it reconstituted, especially Zosin. Zosin takes like, it feels like a day and a half to reconstitute adequately. If the patient doesn't have IV access, you got to get your IV access. You got to set up the pump. You have to do a lot of things. It's not just as simple as going and grabbing an antibiotic. So it might sound easy to do. This actually takes a well-coordinated team all working together. So we're going to get those broad spectrum antibiotics going. And then the very next most important thing is we got to get fluids going. And this could probably be happening simultaneously in in reality. You know, if your patient's hypotensive, has an elevated lactate, they're going to get some fluids most likely. Maybe one person is involved with getting the fluids going and the other person is getting that antibiotic together. Rapid fluid resuscitation is a very, very important component of sepsis treatment. The surviving sepsis guidelines call for 30 mils per kilogram of crystalloid solution when that lactate is elevated, 4.0 or higher, or if the patient is hypotensive. So a lot of your patients are going to be getting fluids, and the fluids are going to be super, super helpful. Now, what do we mean when we say crystalloid solution? Crystalloids refer to fluids that have small molecules and provide immediate volume to the vascular space. Note that these fluids can shift pretty easily into the interstitial space, especially when the vasculature is permeable, such as in sepsis, but the studies show crystalloids are more effective in the sepsis bundle fluid resuscitation than colloids, so we use crystalloids. Just know that your patient could end up with some edema possibly if they have sepsis and we're giving a lot of fluids. Now, in the old days, we used to give a lot of fluids. Now we give what's called a weight-based fluid bolus. Again, that's 30 mils per kilogram. So it's much more intelligent now. It's much more targeted to the individual. And we look at that fluid bolus and we look at how they respond. And then we decide, do they need more fluid or not? So examples of crystalloid solutions are normal saline, which is 0.9% sodium chloride, and lactated ringers.
All right, step four in our sepsis bundle is that we are going to do what we need to do to improve the patient's blood pressure. So we give the fluids. And in a lot of patients, the fluids will improve their blood pressure. Fantastic. But not in everybody. If the patient has hypotension after their 30 mils per kilogram fluid bolus, this is considered septic shock. And they're going to need more support. And we do that with vasopressors. Vasopressors are medications that cause the blood vessels to constrict, and with that vasoconstriction, we get increases in blood pressure. The goal with vasopressors is to achieve a mean arterial pressure of 65 millimeters of mercury or higher. The recommended first-line vasopressor for the use in sepsis is norepinephrine, otherwise known as levofed. Levofed is the brand name for norepinephrine. So there's a lot, as you can see, a lot of things that have to happen if you're going to get all of these things done in a timely manner. And the faster we act and the faster we do these things, the better patients do. So I also want to talk about another component and probably the most important component in surviving sepsis, and that is source control. So while we're doing this bundle of getting that culture drawn, getting those antibiotics in, getting those fluids in, supporting the patient's blood pressure, we're also doing something called source control. And this is identifying, without a doubt, the source of the infection and controlling the growth and spread of that infection. So here's some examples of that. If the patient has that chronic indwelling Foley catheter, and it sure as heck looks like that urine is showing signs of infection, we're going to remove that catheter, right? We're going to control the source. Does the patient have an abscess or an infected wound? That patient is going stat to surgery. We're going to do a debridement and wash out that wound. Does the patient have an infected gallbladder? Guess what? Surgery. Here you go. You're headed to the OR. We're going to get a cholecystectomy gallbladder removal, wash out the abdomen. That patient's probably going to be very sick. Getting them to surgery, getting that source controlled is absolutely key. Does the patient have a central line infection? Central lines are very high risk for infection. We're going to secure alternate access, alternate IV access, and get that central line out. Okay, so that's what we mean by source control. It's not enough just to give the antibiotics and give the fluids and give the norepinephrine. We need to tackle that infection at its source. Okay, so we've got our patient. We're done our bundle. We've identified the source. We pulled out that nasty looking Foley catheter that nobody's changed. And we're providing some good solid family education on that later before the patient gets discharged. But what are we going to do for our ongoing assessments and our ongoing interventions? So this patient is going to be undergoing continuous or intermittent hemodynamic monitoring. So in order to ensure the patient receives the appropriate amount of fluids, remember earlier I said in the olden days, we used to just give a bunch of fluid. Well, now we give fluid and really assess how the patient responds to that. So we're going to do something called hemodynamic monitoring. This will also enable us to titrate 
are vasopressors, our norepinephrine. And by titrate, I mean we're going to increase or decrease the dose. And we do that with hemodynamic monitoring. So this is going to give us valuable information about the body's ability to provide oxygen to the tissues. Remember, heme means blood and dynamic means flow. So we're basically, how well is the blood flow into the tissues to give them the oxygen they need? It's going to look at things like mean arterial pressure. Remember, your norepinephrine, you're probably going to titrate to maintain a mean arterial pressure of 65 millimeters of mercury or, you know, slightly better. It's going to be looking at things like cardiac output, stroke volume, cardiac index, peripheral vascular resistance. All of these things are going to be utilized to guide our interventions in sepsis. We're also going to look at that lactate. So that lactate level, we drew one initially. We're going to remeasure that. We're going to see if that lactate level came down. And generally, this is done six hours after that time zero. So what you want to see, again, is the lactate decreasing with an overall goal of it being less than two millimoles per liter. We'll also monitor the patient's blood pressure. You will continue to monitor your patient for hypotension. Hypotension may indicate the patient needs further interventions. Some patients will need more than just norepinephrine. They may need two or even three vasopressors. They may need an inotrope, which causes the heart to pump more strongly. We'll also monitor blood glucose levels. Blood glucose is going to rise in times of stress, and sepsis is a huge stress on the body. There is currently strong evidence that maintaining a blood glucose level at or below 180 milligrams per deciliter improves patient outcomes. DVT prophylaxis is also important. Your patient's going to get both mechanical and probably also pharmacologic DVT prophylaxis. Mechanical prevention involves those sequential compression devices, and pharmacologic prophylaxis is going to probably be low molecular weight heparin. Your labs will be things like the CBC, the complete metabolic panel, which is going to look at your electrolytes, your liver, and your renal function, and arterial blood gases, which are going to monitor acid-base imbalance, can also get a lactate level from that, and the level of hypoxemia. And I didn't mention this, but the CBC, obviously, you're looking there at the white blood cell count. You would also see platelets. If platelets are really low, that's a sign of organ involvement, and that would be an indicator that there is sepsis. You're also monitoring your patient for organ dysfunction. This is keeping a close eye on things like neurological status, a decreased LOC, super common in sepsis. You'll watch their urine output to see about renal involvement. Oxygenation is going to tell you about lung involvement. Cardiac rhythms, obviously, cardiac involvement and capillary refill. Delayed capillary refill tells you there's an issue with cardiac output with perfusion. And then your patient may need advanced interventions. Very sick patients will require mechanical ventilation, and even some will require continuous renal replacement therapy, or CRRT. Your interventions will always be specific to the patient's condition and the severity of that inflammatory response.
So as I was doing my research for this episode, I came across a pretty cool acronym, and you guys know I love an acronym. So the Sepsis Alliance has developed an acronym to help the public understand the signs of sepsis so that treatment can begin as soon as possible, just like we've done with stroke, right? We want to make sure the public knows the signs of stroke so they can get their loved ones to the hospital ASAP, call 911. We have the same thing now with sepsis, and the acronym is TIME. And T stands for temperature. The individual has a temperature that is higher or lower than normal. Sometimes the infection, the response is so wide blown that you just don't even have normal temperature regulation. So the temperature could be lower than normal. I stands for infection. The individual may have signs and symptoms of infection. They may have mental decline. That's the M in the acronym, mental decline. They're super sleepy. They're difficult to wake up. They're confused. And then E stands for extremely ill. The individual is in severe distress, has shortness of breath, or is in significant pain and discomfort. So that is the acronym TIME to help the public understand the signs of sepsis so they can get their friends, family, loved ones medical attention as soon as possible possible. So there you have it. That is your quick overview. I realized that was kind of intense, but that was your quick overview of that initial treatment for when a patient is recognized as having sepsis. If you want this in a study guide format, I want you to check out straightynursingstudent.com forward slash Power Guides. And Power Guides is a new component that I'm adding to the podcast so that you can power up your learning through this podcast. So I'll put the link in the episode notes. And with Power Guides, essentially, you get a downloadable study guide emailed to you every week when the episode comes out. And yes, if you join Power Guides at a later date, you can still go get the backlog of episode guides if you want them one at a time, okay? But it's a much better deal to just hop on board with Power Guides, just gonna say. All right, so I will see you next week. And let me look and see what we're talking about next week. Oh, we're gonna go over back into maternal newborn land and talk about polyhydramnios. We talked about oligohydramnios a while back. We're gonna dive into polyhydramnios next. So I will see you next Thursday for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. 